And I want to start with a, a special word to Janice Winfrey, who I wasn't expecting uh, to see here tonight. She woke me with a, a phone call early yesterday after uh, yesterday morning with the really devastating news uh, that she just lost her father, who she was very close to. Uh, and she said she didn't know if she could be here uh, tonight. And I was surprised to see her. And Janice, I want you to know uh, we're really glad you're here. And our thoughts and prayers are with you and your family. God bless you. Uh, and I want to thank my partners on Detroit City Council. It's interesting, when I uh, talk to my, my fellow mayors and we talk about State of the City uh, speeches, they're all uh, curious about why I have city council members on the stage. Apparently, that's uh, unheard of in other parts of the country. But I tell them, uh, here in Detroit, uh, we're rebuilding the city as a team. It's the mayor and the council together. Uh, and our goal is to rebuild Detroit in a way that includes everybody. It means all of our talents, the mayor and the council, have to be included uh, in those plans. And at this point, I'd like to introduce my partner, starting with our great council president, Brenda Jones. <laughs> council member Janae Ayers. <laughs> council member James Tate. I think you've got a bigger cheering section. Uh, council member uh, Andre Spivey. <laughs> council member George Cushingberry. <laughs> council member Mary Sheffield. <laughs> council member Raquel Castaneda Lopez. <laughs> uh, council member Gabe Leland. <laughs> and our clerk Janice Winfrey. And Scott Benson is out of town uh, or would be here uh, tonight. Um, but because of our partnership, uh, there's a great deal more hope in the city of Detroit than there was uh, when I delivered the first uh, State of the City three years ago. Remember how things were uh, back then? After 12 straight years of deficits, the city was finally in bankruptcy, and our retirees were rightfully afraid they were going to lose a significant part of their hard-earned pensions. Many of the police precincts had been closed uh, and, and consolidated, and a number of the ones that were open, uh, they weren't open after 5 o'clock, uh, and it often took a half hour if you called uh, 911. Many nights, there were only eight working ambulances in this town, and you didn't know when medical help would arrive. Overgrown grass covered not only the vacant lots, but the parks in the city that had all been closed that previous summer, and nearly half the streetlights in the city were out, and nearly half the buses were sitting broken down in the garages. And those first few weeks, just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, I turned on the TV one night, and there was a reporter on TV asking people to please come to the local firehouse and donate toilet paper because the city of Detroit couldn't figure out how to get toilet paper to their firefighters. And I thought, how dysfunctional do you have to be not to be able to get toilet paper to firehouses? When Kevin Orr uh, departed and we left bankruptcy in December of 2014, a lot of people predicted Detroit would be right back in the same financial problems, that we couldn't manage our own affairs. But instead, we finished 2015 with the first balanced budget in 12 years. 
And then last year, we finished with the second balanced budget. And this June, we're going to finish with the third yeah. balanced budget. And I fully expect in early 2018, we will be permanently out from financial review, con uh, review commission oversight because we will have made budget and paid our bills for three years in a row. Self-determination will be back. Yeah. And we balance that budget while cutting emergency response time on police and, and EMS in half by getting the 65,000 street lights on while reopening all 270 parks while demolishing 11,000 vacant buildings and getting another 5,000 occupied. And with the help of the great DDOT drivers and mechanics and office staff, we're not only achieving full pullout, we're providing 1,300 more trips a week to the people of this community. So we know we've got a long way to go, uh, but I want to take a minute uh, to introduce the cabinet uh, who's been working on this. Most of the year, all they hear from me is why they're not doing more. And so this is the one uh, night of the year they get some recognition. If you see somebody, please tweet them. They really enjoy that. Uh, let's start with our great uh, chief of police, James Craig. I'm going to ask you to hold uh, your applause to the end, or my speech will be over when we're done. Uh, Alexis Wiley, our chief of staff. Dave Masseron, the deputy chief of staff. Uh, John Hill, our chief financial officer. Beth Niblock, our chief technology officer. Uh, Butch Hollowell, our corporation counsel. Charlie Beckham, the head of the Department of Neighborhoods. Eric Jones, our fire commissioner. Dave Minardo, the head of operations. Uh, we have Dan Dirks, who's running DDOT. Uh, and we have, uh, you're sitting in the wrong order here on me. Uh, Denise Starr, uh, I, I knew that, you shouldn't look at my page. Head of HR, Gary Brown, the head of the Water Department. Portia Roberson, our Civil Rights Director. Uh, Lisa Howes, our Government Affairs Director. Jed Halbert, who runs the Economic Development Operation. Arthur uh, Jemison, uh, our Housing Director. And our newest cabinet member, uh, Jonay, please stand up. This is her first week on the job. Uh, Jonay Caldoun, our health director, whose family is from Detroit, uh, but she went out to Penn for medical school, was working in the city of Baltimore as a nationally renowned uh, leader of the health department, and has come back here home and is now leading the health department of the city of Detroit. Please give a big hand to the entire cabinet. Uh, and I also want to take this time to thank the 9,000 men and women who work for the city of Detroit. Aren't they doing a remarkable job? Um, so that uh, pretty well gets us to the conclusion of the discussion of things we've already done. Uh, because uh, I don't really want to talk about what we've done. I want to spend uh, the rest of the night talking about what comes next. Uh, we've improved the basic services, but if we're going to fulfill a vision of building a Detroit that includes everybody, we've got to do a whole lot more. And so I hope uh, the staff will forgive that we won't spend a lot of time on the past, but instead talk about the things that we're going to do. We're going to spend tonight talking about what comes next. And you can't have a recovery 
that includes everyone if there aren't jobs available for everyone willing to work. And the unemployment rate in Detroit has gone down from 18% three years ago to 9.8% last month, which sounds like a great accomplishment. Except at 9.8%, it still remains the highest unemployment rate of any city in the state of Michigan. We have a whole lot more work left to do. And so as our next step, starting tomorrow, we're attacking the problem by creating a whole new platform, which we're calling Detroit at Work. The Detroit at Work website is live now on the city's webpage, and it links you to training programs. But here's what's different about what's happened in the past. This time, we went to the employers in this city, and we said to them, what jobs are you hiring for? Tell us where the vacancies are right now. And then we went to the training programs that were training for those jobs so people knew if I actually went through this program, there'll be a job for me at the end of the line. Uh, and that's all we're going to do is put in training programs. We know there's a job. And it's, it's interesting in this world how you, you hit on these ideas. It came out of a training program. Uh, we started at the Ryan uh, Correctional Center for Returning Citizens, something uh, Councilmember Janae Ayers uh, was a sponsor of. Uh, and what we are doing is taking uh, returning citizens six months away from being released. And we have about 3,000 people a year released uh, from the prisons of the state of Michigan come back to the streets of Detroit. And if we don't have something productive for them to do, we know they're going to get right back up to what they were doing before. So we got together with the state of Michigan and said, let's identify people six months before they're getting out. And we're only going to train them for jobs that we know exist. And so we talked to our employers, high-low operators in warehouses. You get a certificate to be a high-low operator, they can't fill them. Uh, lead abatement uh, specialists uh, that take out the lead to renovate the houses so we can rent them out in the city. You need special training, you get a certificate. Um, Food and line prep cooks uh, for all the restaurants that are opening the city. Also, I didn't know this, but you get a certificate for that. Uh, and asbestos removal prior to demolition is also a job with a certificate. So uh, what we did was we set up training programs and we went uh, to, to the folks in, these, in the prison and said, here's four choices. And you can get good jobs, $14, $16, $18 an hour if you want to work hard. And the response was remarkable. And so we did an event at Ryan Prison uh, where we announced this, and there was a young man who stood up at this, and he was all excited. He says, I'm 25 years old. He says, and the first job training I've ever gotten in my life was here at prison. He says, now, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody else. <laughs> he says, but it does seem odd that you have to go to prison to learn your skills. And so I talked to him afterwards. And I said, this is interesting. Why, why couldn't you have gotten into a program before? And he said, you know, you got all these schools out there advertising. You got all these programs out there. You don't know if there's a job or not. He says, but what you did here was you came to us and said, here are the jobs they're hiring for. Here's the training program. And we're excited to sign up. He said, if you ever did that for everybody else in the city, uh, it would be very successful. And so, uh, based on the advice of that returning citizen, we have today kicked off Detroit at Work uh, on the city website, and it's going to be uh, the portal by which people in the city get a clear path to jobs.
So, uh, Jeff uh, Donofrio, who's doing a great job running this program, is sitting down with the different employees, and they're now all on this workforce board, the Detroit Work Board, and the hospitals come in, the, the heads of DMC and Henry Ford and St. John's. We said, okay, what have you got? And they said, we have all kinds of entry-level jobs that we can't fill, whether they're patient care assistants or people who work in the cafeteria, people push uh, folks in the wheelchairs. They said, well, how can you not fill jobs uh, in this city where we got such high unemployment? And they said, the biggest problem is we can't get transcripts, high school transcripts from the Detroit public schools. You can't hire somebody under a hospital if you don't have the transcript. And Jeff says, that can't possibly be true. And so they went over to the Detroit public schools. And you know what they found? One million paper transcripts in a warehouse in a school system run by an emergency manager who was dealing with everything he or she could uh, at the schools, it took two to three months every time a hospital sent a request for a transcript. And by the time they got the transcript, somebody else had the job. And you say, how many barriers do we have to erect uh, in front of the folks in this town? But this is what Detroit at Work is doing. So we dug into the problem and said, okay, we're going to solve this. We approached the interim superintendent, Alicia Merriweather, and we have an educator in charge of the school system. And she got really mad. She said, these, these children made it through a graduated and they're not getting the credit. And she told her people, we're putting a process in place now where they electronically tracked every request. And we got them down to three or four days, which was progress. But when we took it to the Detroit Work Board, they said, we can do better than that. So Matt Simoncini, the head of Lear, says, this is ridiculous. We need to digitalize this. He says, I will buy the scanners and donate them to the Detroit public schools uh, so that uh, we can make, get them electronic. I said, well, okay, but who's going to scan these million pieces of paper? Well, only one person in town had that many people, and so we went to Dan Gilbert. <laughs> and we said, uh, Dan, uh, we need people to do this. He put out the call to the Quicken employees. They had nearly 500 employers, employees willing to donate their time. Every day over at DPS, you've got 10 or 20 Quicken employees volunteering their time, putting these transcripts in so the high school graduates of the city of Detroit can get jobs. This is the way we work as a community. Uh, Council President Brenda Jones has headed up the effort on the Skilled Trades Task Force for years. But it has just been so frustrating to get men and women of color to have opportunities uh, to be in the trades. And so uh, when the city does projects that it supports, we have a requirement that 51% of the hours worked uh, actually be done by city employees. And since Portia Robers has taken over, she actually goes out every two weeks and audits the books. And we started finding people who weren't making their numbers. And we started to collect money and fines. But they weren't getting employed, and Portia came in one day and says, you're not gonna believe this. She says, at the uh, hockey arena site today, they got 120 plumbers working on site. I said, okay. She says, there's only 58 licensed plumbers in the city of Detroit. If they hired every single one, they wouldn't make 51%. We've got to change this program from a fine-collecting program to an employment program. 
So we sat down with the plumbers union and we said, what can we do differently? We want to get Detroiters into these training programs. And we struck an agreement where the plumbers who represent all of southeastern Michigan signed an agreement that 25% of every one of their apprenticeship classes for the next 10 years at minimum will be Detroit residents. And they've committed to tripling the number of plumbers in Detroit over the next 10 years. And then the carpenters came in and said, we want to do the same thing. And the carpenters signed the same agreement. And now the carpenters and the plumbers are out recruiting in Detroit. And I got a chance to go to the last plumber's apprenticeship class and to see such a diverse and excited uh, group of future plumbers was amazing. But speaking to them was a woman by the name of Adrienne Bennett, the first African-American female master plumber in the state of Michigan. And she's now a plumbing contractor. And she was there to say, being a plumber is a good thing. She says, but being a contractor is a lot better. You all need to be thinking about going into business. And she had them all fired up about starting to start their own businesses. <laughs> These are the things that we can do when we're working together. So on the Detroit at Work website today, We've got 700 different training slots, a lot of uh, trainers, including Focus Hope. And it's things like CDL drivers who can drive uh, buses and snowplows. Uh, it's apprenticeships for software developers. It's coding training. It's the construction jobs. It's food prep workers, hospital patient care workers. All those jobs that are available now uh, are on that site. And after uh, the action for Detroit City Council today, in support of the first step, of our next project. Very shortly, the Pistons will be on that website hiring people from the city of Detroit. Because, uh, you know, for those of us who've been around a long time and I remember how heartbreaking it was when the Lions left, when the Pistons left, and of course, Mayor Coleman Young kept the Red Wings here by building Joe Lewis uh, Arena, and I was involved with Mayor Archer in the 1990s in bringing the Lions back. But I never thought I'd see the day that we're going to see this October, when the first time in more than 40 years, all of Detroit's professional sports teams will be playing in the city of Detroit. And I also want to thank the business community for the enormous support of Grow Detroit's young talent. Uh, last year, we hired 8,000 young people for summer jobs. We've already got nearly 5,000. And so uh, to the young people in this community for summer jobs this summer, the open enrollment is ongoing. And this year, uh, we've got hundreds of employers who are looking to improve what they're doing and actually create more uh, traditional internships, link you to jobs that you might be interested in. You're going to have to go through interviews. Uh, but there's a reason last year J.P. Morgan Chase named the Detroit Summer Jobs Program the best summer jobs program in America. Uh, so please, uh, you've got another six weeks to apply. Employers, we always could use more help, uh, but we want to make this the best summer ever for our children. And our youth are also uh, being supported in their aspirations to go to college. Last year, the Detroit Promise made our city the first major city in America to offer two-year free college tuition to anybody who graduates from one of our high schools to go to community college.
More than 600 young people started community college last fall with the support of the Detroit Promise. And I want to thank uh, the Greater Detroit Chamber of Commerce, the philanthropic community, and Governor Snyder, who all were actively involved in raising money for this program. So what happens next? This year, we're extending the program. And now, for those who are really diligent in their studies that exceed a 3.0 grade point average in a 21 ACT, this fall, four years of college education will be paid for by the Detroit province. And so, if you're 10 or 12 or 14 years old, and you want to go to college and you think it's out of your reach, it's not. The Detroit Promise is funded and going to be here long term. If you apply yourself, college is going to be available to any resident of the city of Detroit who graduates from Detroit High School. It's one of the privileges of growing up in the city of Detroit. Uh, and the need for providing our children real education opportunities is the reason that I have so strongly opposed the State School Reforms Office proposed closure of the 24 Detroit Public Schools. Yeah. You know, the state emergency manager ran those schools for the years they were measured. When they came in and said the schools were failing, we already knew that. The new elected school board uh, with President Iris Taylor has been in place for six weeks. They haven't had an opportunity uh, to address the problem. And they're not saying these schools are where they need to be. They know they need to be turned around. But here's what I know for sure. We have 110,000 school children in this city, which means we need 110,000 seats in quality schools. Closing a school doesn't add a single quality seat. All it does is bounce our children around from place to place. We know we need to improve these schools, but before you close a school, you need to make sure there's a better alternative. And I've been encouraged uh, by the conversations between the school board leadership and the governor's office this week. I'm optimistic we're going to work things out, uh, but I want everybody in this community to know uh, that I will be standing uh, with President Iris Taylor and the Detroit School Board on this entire school closure issue. And another group I'll be standing strongly in support of is our immigrant community. Yeah. And I know Detroit City Council feels the same way I do. Uh, Council members Raquel Castaneda-Lopez and Andre Spivey have chaired the Immigration Task Force on City Council, and we've been partners from the beginning. And so to the immigration community and the question of what next? I want to be clear. Detroit is going to stand as a pro-immigration welcoming city. We're not going to waver from that. I want to take a minute to talk about what's happened because there have been some media reports that I think have created unnecessary anxiety. Ten years ago, this city 
adopted an anti-profiling ordinance that said the Detroit police don't do the jobs of Customs and Immigration. If you run into them on the street or, or at the police station, they will not ask you for your citizenship. They do not profile. That policy has been included in every police training academy for the last 10 years, and it is core to who the Detroit police are today, and it has not changed. And with the strong support of Councilmember Castaneda Lopez in the last three years, you look at what we've done. We've created the first ever Office of Immigration Affairs with Fayrouz Saad as our director. We became certified as America's 41st welcoming city for our progressive policies on integrating immigrants into the community. We've increased the hiring of bilingual staff and are putting out our documents in multiple languages. Last year, we became the second city in the state of Michigan to offer municipal IDs for those lacking documentations. And we've welcomed more than 50 Syrian refugee families into the city of Detroit, and they've come here with nothing but acceptance, because that's who we are as a city. I want to talk to another group of Detroiters who are feeling vulnerable tonight. Those people living in affordable housing who are afraid they might get pushed out of their homes to make room for wealthier residents. What's next for you? I want you to know that this mayor and this council are going to do everything within our legal power to keep your housing affordable and keep anyone from moving you out. So. I really became aware of this in 2013 when I was campaigning for mayor, and I, I went to a senior center over on uh, uh, Griswold, uh, and the seniors were kind enough to interrupt their bingo game to talk to me, which doesn't happen every day in this town when a politician comes in. Uh, and we spent uh, a special afternoon as they told me about raising their families in the city and how much they love being there. A month later, those seniors got a notice. They were all being kicked out of their affordable housing because the building had been sold. And I said, how could this happen? And the administration's reaction was basically to shrug, like nobody cared. And I said, how can you not care? And the way affordable housing works in this country is HUD, the federal government, enters into long-term contracts with building owners where they say, we'll pay a part of the rent and your tenants who can't otherwise afford to live there will pay the rest. And they'll sign agreements for 30 years so you know when these things are happening. Well, the city, you would think, should have known because it was a 30-year deal that ran out and nobody did anything while they sold the building. And when I looked at it, I found out we had 50 buildings with 5,000 people in affordable housing set to expire in the next five years. In other parts of the country, there's an active housing program. And so one of my first priorities was to recruit somebody who knew housing. We went and got Arthur Jemison, uh, one of the national housing experts, came uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. And when I showed this to him, I said, we got to find a solution to this. And he came back pretty shortly and says, uh, we got a problem. I said, what's your problem? He says, we got two more buildings right next door on Washington Boulevard. Same thing's happening. They're expiring. The building's going to be sold. Uh, and we're going to have 165 people in downtown Detroit kicked out. And he says, and let me tell you the bad news. And I said, there's something worse? He said, yeah. He says, you know the people who were kicked out of 1210 Griswold? Several of them came over to these buildings. They're about to get kicked out again. I said, now there is no point in being mayor of this city if you can't stand up for people who are otherwise being pushed around. 
And we were very lucky uh, that we had a great group, the Roxbury Group and David Dorita, that came forward and said, we'll buy the building. We'll keep everybody in it. You just got to do one thing. The contracts with HUD are expiring. You got to solve the HUD bureaucracy and keep the funding flowing. And so Arthur and I intervened with the Obama administration, who were enormously supportive. They got the approvals done, and those 165 people are staying in those apartments. We are not having a city where one section of the city is only available to the wealthy, and the other sections are left for others. We are going to have a city where anybody can live everywhere. And now uh, Arthur Jemison and the team are working through every single one of those houses. We've already solved uh, four different ones with 600 residents that have been locked up long term. And we're in the process of taking care of each and every one of them. But it's not just enough to preserve the affordable housing we have. Because as rents rise in this city, uh, we're going to have a need for affordable housing everywhere. Uh, and if we believe that every part of the city should be available to everyone, we need to act. Uh, and so we've made a commitment as an administration that it doesn't matter what part of town there is. We're going to be committed to building affordable housing. And in the last three years, we've opened up seven new affordable housing units. The 48-unit Coronado Apartments in Palmer Park, the 47-unit Garden View on the west side, the 54-unit Strathmore in the heart of Midtown, two blocks from DMC. We have 27 units on Charlotte for homeless veterans, just two blocks from the new Little Caesars Arena. This city is big enough that there's room for everybody, including homeless veterans in even the nicest neighborhoods. 46 units of the Gen Jennings Senior Center on the east side, 47 units at Cass Plaza in Davenport, and 38 units at the Traymore Apartments in Midtown. And I went and cut the ribbon on the Traymore. And as I left, uh, a man came up to me and he had two beautiful little girls with him, maybe five and three years old. He said, I want to shake your hand. I said, it's nice to meet you. He said, I was born in this city, I love this city, but a few years ago I had to leave because I couldn't have my daughters here, things had gotten so bad. He says, but then I found this apartment that was set in an affordable rate so somebody like me can afford it, move into this beautiful neighborhood, have a place for my daughters. So I want you to know, I just signed a lease and I'm moving back into the city of Detroit with my daughters, coming here to Midtown Detroit. You say, that's what we're trying to build. So what comes next? We've got eight more housing projects already under construction, 300 more affordable units, great partnerships, including the faith-based community. And I want to thank Reverend Charles Adams and Hartford uh, for the new Hartford Village that will be opening on Myers. And what else comes next? I want to say right now, we fully support the affordable housing ordinance being sponsored by Mary Sheffield, now before City Council. It will assure you that no matter what neighborhood you're building in, if it's new residential, if the city is financially supporting your development, at least 20% of your units are going to be set aside for low-income housing. We are going to build a city where there is a mix of incomes in every corner of the neighborhood, and we're going to be working hard because what Councilmember Sheffield has done is taken what has been a policy of the administration, and she's making it the law of the city. And I want to congratulate her for her efforts. Uh, 
But as all, we all know, the recovery of Detroit is going to be defined by the progress of our neighborhoods. And I ran a campaign where I said uh, every neighborhood is going to have a future. And nothing was choking the life out of our neighborhoods faster than the abandoned homes. So what comes next? In 2017, we are going to speed up the demolition of homes, and we are going to do it in full compliance with all federal and state regulations. <laughs> So in the last three years, we've taken on homes at a rate no one's seen in America, 11,000, the second largest demolition program in America, the state of Ohio, a highly respected program. Their entire state took down 4,000. We took down in the city of Detroit triple the rate of the state of Ohio. It was uh, productively an amazing accomplishment. And, and I push it, there's no question, because uh, watching what's happening in these abandoned homes, we've had women assaulted in these abandoned homes. We've had uh, abandoned homes that have caught fire and spread and made the neighbors next door homeless when they put them out. We actually had an abandoned home in southwest Detroit that when a scrapper was in there exploded and took out four other houses in the neighborhood. So when I look at these abandoned houses, to me, getting rid of them is a matter of life and death. And I put enormous pressure uh, on the land bank to move very, very fast. Uh, probably faster uh, than they had uh, controls in place. And so the feds shut us down for 60 days last summer, and they were right to do it. But we didn't make any complaints. We didn't whine about it. We said, you're right. We sat in the room, put new processes in place, and I want to thank uh, Mary Townley from Mischa and Erica Ward-Gerson from the Land Bank, who in 60 days put in an entirely new set of practices that have the programs up and running. And now we have a joint team of state employees and land bank employees on every single contract with new finance oversight, new operations oversight, new compliance oversight. And we believe that at the rate we are ramping up, we are going to be able to take out 10,000 abandoned houses in this city over the next two years. But this time, our goal is not only to be the fastest. We are committed to being a program that is fully compliant with all state and federal regulations so that our supporters never have reason to regret having supported us. Uh, because uh, we wouldn't have this $130 million to take out the next 10,000 houses if it hadn't been for a special appropriation of Congress and the support of the governor. And we got it through the efforts of Senator Dabby Stabenow and Congress members uh, John Conyers and Brenda Lawrence. We got it with huge lobbying efforts by Dan Gilbert and the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Jamie Dimon. We got it through the efforts of Wendell Anthony and Jesse Jackson, who reached out to people that I didn't have a relationship with. It was a remarkable uh, legislative achievement. And I just want to say to all of you who helped us get this done, we're going to run this program in a way that will make you proud that you supported us. So with the thousands of uh, vacant homes that have either been sold by the land banks and family moved in or that have been rehabbed either by their lawsuits or more and more in this city, people are rehabbing on their own. We started with 40,000 vacant houses in the city three years ago. We believe by the end of 2018, we will be down to 10,000 abandoned houses in the city. Um.
It took 60 years to empty these neighborhoods out, and it's going to take us a few years to get them back. But we are treating this issue with the urgency it deserves. And, and as we ramp up the demolitions, we're very conscious of our responsibility environmentally. I was really pleased that the EPA has named Detroit's demolition practices the state of the art for environmental practices of any demolition program in the country. Um, but now we need to ramp it up again because there are going to be more demolitions and more concentrated areas. And we've always been concerned about the airborne dust and what might be in it. And so uh, we are going to be adding a new layer of stringent environmental controls that will start with the contractors this spring. We're going to remain the environmentally best demolition program uh, in America. But you can't begin to rebuild our neighborhoods if people keep leaving. And remember the media reports about the tsunami of foreclosures, 60,000, 80,000, 100,000 people uh, were going to leave. Couldn't do anything about it. That's uh, just the way it was. And, and when you looked at why, when uh, our residents had arrearages and they go to the treasurer and say, I want to work out a payment plan, state law required the treasurer to charge them 18% interest. Couldn't do anything about it. And so they said, we threw up their hands, except... We didn't accept the fact nothing could be done. With the great leadership of our Detroit delegation in Lansing, and with bipartisan support and the support of the governor, we passed a bill that allowed treasurers in this state to offer four and five year payment plans at 6% interest. And then, getting that done was a huge step. We needed to reach people. And it was remarkable. Ted Phillips and, and the uh, United Housing Coalition and 15 different neighborhood groups spread out across this city, knocking on doors, letting people know. I was just with the Rosedale group, uh, and they showed me they were on their way out. These are the cards they're giving people. They know exactly who's in danger. It says, we want you to stay. This is how they start the conversations. It's those volunteers that avoided 50,000 foreclosures in the last two years and are the reason our neighborhoods are stable. So I want to thank the treasurer, Eric Sabri, and the people who organized these door-knocking efforts, including uh, city council members Gabe Leland and George Cushingberry. Uh, when we all pull together, uh, we can change this community. Uh, I get asked, it seems like every day, uh, you've got all this investment in downtown and midtown. It's great. I like it. But when's the investment coming to the neighborhoods? All right. Somebody here is the one asking it. That's Sherry. <laughs> so I want you to know it's starting today. We are talking tonight about the Strategic Neighborhood Fund which has been put together by Dave Blaskowitz, Invest Detroit, and our philanthropic community. $30 million that will be invested in neighborhood development, much like has been done in downtown and midtown. And we're glad to have the support of several philanthropic organizations. Steve Arwood and MEDC has been a great partner. And here's what we're doing with that $30 million. We're starting in three neighborhoods to prove it makes a difference in the Livernoy-McNichols area, uh, in the West Village area on the east side, uh, and in southwest Detroit near Clark Park. And as we roll out these things, the city of Detroit is trying something different. We're actually talking to the residents and asking them what they'd like to see in their neighborhood. 
we've had 40 different planning sessions uh, with the folks at Livernois and McNichols in the Fitzgerald neighborhood, and they've developed an entire plan that's now being rolled out. We're going to take 80 vacant buildings in their neighborhood and move families in and rehab all of them. We're going to take a whole string of vacant lots and create a beautiful uh, landscape, bikeway and walkway, connecting Marygrove College to UAD Mercy. And we're going to take vacant storefronts along Livernoy and McNichols and start to move in the kinds of shops that people in the neighborhoods need. Then we go over to southwest Detroit uh, and the group by Clark Park. And they said the first thing we need is we have this group of dilapidated row houses that's been depressing this neighborhood. And so we've taken on as the first project at their request, renovating, getting occupied, that group of row houses. And we're going to build from there. Then we go over to West Village. And they said, we need more retail, more shopping. We've already started a retail uh, and apartment complex, uh, the Co., and we're about to open up a second one or start a second one on Kirchival. If we can prove that when you invest in these neighborhoods, the neighborhoods start to come back, the first $30 million will only be the beginning. And so I want everybody to watch what happens. Because if we can prove this works, and I do believe it will, uh, then we're going to go back for another 30 million and another 30 million as we move across the neighborhoods all through this city. Uh, uh, what else is next? Here's something you probably didn't expect. Uh, this May, you're going to see street sweepers on the streets of Detroit. <laughs> DPW has bought eight street sweepers, and our streets are going to be swept for the first time since 2010. And you know all those catch basins that flood up on the street every time it rains? Well, Gary Brown and the Water Department have just bought eight new vectors. And I can't tell you I knew what a vector was before, but I know what it is now. And they're going to go into those storm drains and suck the clogs out of there so we start uh, to make some progress. Now, now Gary uh, tells me uh, that there are 90,000 storm drains that haven't been maintained in a while, uh, but we're going to get to them from the most flooded to the least, but we're going to start to see this kind of attention. The other thing that we're going to be doing is we're going to try and address the homeowner's insurance in this city. All right. And unlike car insurance, which the legislature controls, this is something we can do. And here's what I found out. In 2013, there's a group called uh, the Insurance Services Organization that rates fire departments across America. And your homeowner's insurance is based on their rating. The city of Detroit has always been rated a two, one of the highest ratings in the country, and we enjoyed fairly low rates. But in 2013, you had 30,000 fire hydrants that weren't being expected. Remember the stories? Firefighters would show up and there'd be no uh, pressure in the hose. We had fire trucks breaking down on the way to fires. And so the national organization came in, they assessed the fire department, and they downgraded us seriously, which is probably costing everybody in this room $100 to $200 a year more uh, because of the performance of the fire department. But now we have a new leader of the fire department, Eric Jones, our fire commissioner, and we have a partnership 
with Mike Nevin, the president of the Firefighters Union. I don't remember when the president of the Firefighters Union, the fire commissioner, got along. Certainly not since I've been around. Uh, and they are working together to address this. And we're going issue by issue through the checklist. We got 19 new fire engines. In the next two years, we got another 16 that are in order now. We've got a whole new... Uh, uh, inspection process that Beth, Beth Niblock from the IT direct, uh, director uh, set up, and all 30,000 fire hydrants have been inspected and fixed in the last four months, and they're going to be inspected and fixed every four months going forward. Uh, we've got new training, new dispatch system, and when these fire trucks come in this summer, this fall we're inviting the insurance organization back and ask them to do a reassessment. And if we succeed, as I expect we will, and we get raised back up to a two in 2018, not just homeowners, but businesses in this city will see an impact. This is something we can control. And I want to say congratulations to everybody in the fire department for your contribution uh, to making this a little better. Our city's never uh, going to reach our potential until everyone is safe. And I want to congratulate Chief Craig and the men and women of the Detroit Police Department for how far we have come. It's a far cry from the days when 911 calls averaged 30 minutes and uh, uh, police stations were closed and people felt disconnected. What Chief Craig did in bringing in 44 neighborhood police officers in establishing a principle of community policing where people got to know the neighborhoods was a major step forward, and I thank you for doing that. But what comes next? We are not where we need to be. And so we got three things coming. We've got new cops, new precincts, and new technology. Uh, and we're going to come at it with all three. Uh, with last year's pay raise, we are now filling the police academy. We've got 30 officers a month coming out of the academy. We've got more than 200 officers in training today. And as those officers get put back in to replenish the precincts, the chief is committed that he's going to put more and more support behind the people investigating the gun violence in the city. We're finally going to have the resources to push back on what we're suffering. We've already reopened a new third precinct, a new fifth precinct, and with the support of Council Member James Tate, this June we're going to reopen something that never should have been clo closed, the new eighth precinct. And next year we'll build a new seventh precinct. We are going to connect the police to this community. And then new technology. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen anything take off uh, the way green lights have. I mean, we now have more than 100 green light partners uh, in this city. Uh, and from the time we started out, it was a year ago, we had the first eight. We weren't really sure what was going to happen. Comcast and DTE came in with discounts that made it affordable as we move from one to another. The violence and crime have dropped dramatically at the green light stations. And when crimes do occur, I can tell you, as a former prosecutor, the easiest way in the world to get a conviction is play a color video of the person committing the crime. Yes. 
We are now hearing stories of people in this community treating the green light stations as safe havens. If they're feeling in danger, they're either uh, walking or driving over to a green light station to call 911. That was a good step, uh, but we need to do more because it shows what technology can do. We were certainly disappointed we didn't drop the homicide rate last year, but those stories of people being carjacked at gas stations were going every week. With green lights last year, carjackings in the city of Detroit dropped 28%, our biggest crime drop of any category. <laughs> Technology works. And so in May, there's going to be a massive real-time crime center opened up at police headquarters with huge numbers of crime analysts, lots of screens. One of the issues with green lights is we've had community groups and police go and persuade different folks to sign up. Uh, but we've got some where it seems like the people who are out in front uh, seem to be treated with a lot of affection uh, by the people inside the business. And so uh, with the support of Councilman Andre Spivey, who sponsored the original ordinance requiring businesses to have cameras, uh, we are going to be asking over the next 18 months that council adopt an ordinance so that businesses in this city that take customers after 10 p.m. be required to be green light businesses and protect their customers. It doesn't cost that much to have your customers be safe. Nothing uh, we can do for the people most vulnerable is any more important uh, than uh, our newborn babies. We still have preterm birth and infant mortality rates uh, that are the highest uh, in the area. And for a pregnant mom, carrying your baby to term is critical uh, to a baby's health because uh, before 32 weeks, if that baby's born, you've got a much higher chance of respiratory distress, brain damage, or that baby dying. Uh, and so uh, we made enormous progress with a program we call Make Your Date. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Roy Wilson and Dr. Sonia Hassan from Wayne State University, who have done such a great job with the program and are here tonight. But what, what Make Your Date did was link up uh, medical professionals, whether you have a doctor or not, with pregnant moms, gave you all the latest resources, uh, would counsel you as you went along the way, and the women who went through that program saw a 30% reduction in preterm births. It works. But we've got 600 moms in the program now, and it's not enough. And so uh, Dr. Jonay came in and she says, there's a reality in public health, and that is uh, that certain pregnant moms, particularly teenagers, don't necessarily relate to the medical professionals. We've got to find a way to reach them. And she has brought to our city a national model uh, that is known as Sister Friends that we're going to be rolling out this week. And we're asking people tonight if they would be willing to volunteer to be Sister Friends. And here's what a Sister Friend is. A Sister Friend is somebody who's compassionate and has common sense and is willing to be paired one-on-one -on -one with a pregnant mom through her pregnancy and through her baby's first birthday. So what you have to do is go through a training session and then meet with your pregnant mom, your partner, an hour a week with other sister friends and other moms. And what they have found nationally is this, that when 
these pregnant moms, particularly these teenage pregnant moms, have somebody they see as a sister that they confide to, that the advice they get on nutrition and exercise and making their doctor's appointments is taken in a whole different way. And so if you believe that it takes a village to raise a child, uh, please go to our website and look at Sister Friends. If you think you have it in your heart to help one mom get through one birth, uh, we'd love to have your help. And if you're a, uh, a pregnant mom out there who would like the sister friend, please go to the website because the Detroit Health Department is going to pair you up and see if we can't change uh, the health of our youngest people. And finally, I want to talk about an issue that is seriously holding back Detroit's future, something that we have no control over. It's got to be dealt with in Lansing. And you all know what I'm going to say. Car insurance. When the Michigan legislature enacted the no-fault law in 1973, it did so with the best of intentions. The idea was everybody was going to immediately get medical care from their own doctor, and there'd only be lawsuits on the most serious cases, right? It may have started out that way, but 44 years later, the system is completely out of control. Uh, and so last year, I asked the legislature, I said, okay, I don't care about the rest of the state. Give Detroit our own authority. We'll have our own plan. I know something about the medical field and insurance. We'll put our own plan together, and they can choose whether they want to buy your $4,000 uh, state plan or our plan. And an interesting thing happened. A lot of the outstate legislators... Listen to me and said, your plan sounds really good. But the people in my district have car insurance that's too high, too. I don't want to just vote for car insurance relief in the city of Detroit. What about the rest of the state? And the interesting thing is they're right. Everybody in this state's getting screwed by the no-fault system. <laughs> in Ohio, it costs $900 a year to get car insurance. In the state of Michigan, it costs $1,700 a year, double. But in Detroit, it costs $3,400 a year. And so while Detroit is hurting the worst, the truth of the matter is, it's affecting everybody. You think about a couple with two cars. And, and I know I've got some of my Republican friends here who proposed income tax reductions. The state of Michigan and the governor pushed back and said the state's financial condition can't afford it. You're, you're going to devastate schools and other things. Well, the income tax cuts may be worth a couple hundred bucks. If you solve the car insurance, you'll put three or four times that back in people's pockets, and you won't hurt any state services. Yeah. So there's a reason why only 12 states in the country still have no fault. It's ridiculously expensive. And we know what the problems are. The hospitals in the medical community are charging triple what they're getting for Blue Cross in those rates. Lawyers are taking not money from the injuries, they're taking a good chunk of the medical bills, and they're taking them in legal fees, driving the costs up more. And of course, the insurance companies pass all of this on with a profit. So the insurance companies are doing fine, the lawyers are doing fine, the hospitals are doing fine, uh, and all of us are paying the bill. And so I'm asking at this point that we get together. I think the thought 
was right. We should address this on a statewide basis. This is affecting everybody. And so I am hoping that we can get the hospitals, the lawyers, the insurance companies, Republicans and Democrats uh, can come together. I really appreciate the leadership of Mark Bernstein uh, from Michigan's first family of law. Right? <laughs> Mark Bernstein stood up and he said, what's happening on the legal side is wrong. This needs to be corrected. What kind of courage does that take? Imagine going to your next bar meeting, right? Uh, but he says, I'll be at the table. I want to fix this. I appreciate the leadership of Reverend Wendell Anthony and the NAACP who have taken this on as a civil rights issue that half of Detroiters don't have mobility because they can't afford their car insurance. And I appreciate the leadership of Tom Leonard, who sponsored this last year and has said unequivocally that if we do this, the insurance companies have to come to the table and they have to give us real rate reductions as a part of this. We're doing this to lower the costs to the consumers of the city of Detroit. And so I'm not sure whether they're going to do this year, but I want everybody here to know I will be in Lansing and I will work hand in hand with people of goodwill who look in the mirror and say, this system is immoral. When half of Detroiters are driving illegally, when people across this state are being overcharged, it's wrong. And it's my hope that this is the year we all come together uh, because nothing could raise the spirits of this city faster than a new auto insurance bill. Thank you all very much for being here and have a good evening.